Hey everyone and welcome back to Crisis of Crime. My name is Rachel Means and I'm a criminologist. Thank you so much for tuning in for my weekly podcast where we talk about criminology and criminal justice reform. So last week we talked about Enron and white collar crime and I figured why not continue talking about white collar crime. So today we're going to be talking about Bernie Madoff. The Bernie Madoff affair was the largest Ponzi scheme in American history and it came to light in 2008. Now, a Ponzi scheme is defined as a fraudulent investment operation that pays quick returns to initial contributors by using money from subsequent contributors rather than by profit. By the fall of Bernie Madoff Investment Securities in 2008, Madoff was running the largest unregistered hedge fund in history, with assets equaling around $50 billion. Madoff was able to achieve such earnings by providing his service as an investment advisor to other companies who would then invest with him, but left his name out of the paperwork. You see, he preferred to be a silent partner and always came through with his profits, even during the housing market crash of 2006. He, of course, was doing this by paying off earlier investors with new investors' money rather than actually investing that money into legitimate sources and making a profit. Many agencies, both public and private, are tasked with regulating firms such as Madoff's to ensure that fraud is not occurring. Needless to say, many agencies and regulatory bodies really dropped to the ball when it came to Bernie Madoff. It's similar in Enron in a way that it fits the organizational theory where those regulatory bodies are there to prevent crimes from happening because they are keeping a close eye on everything. So in both Enron and the Bernie Madoff case, that guardianship was not there to help prevent crimes from happening. In today's podcast, I want to go over three different topics. I want to talk about the regulatory bodies that were meant to oversee Bernie Madoff and his affairs and the errors that they had and how they missed that fraud was happening. I want to talk a little bit about shared responsibility. And then lastly, I'll talk about what I think are appropriate sanctions for not just Bernie Madoff, but all the parties involved that led to this catastrophe happening. The first regulatory body that I want to talk about today is the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC. The SEC is an agency that is governed by the United States government, which has been tasked with enforcing, proposing, and regulating security laws in the United States. This includes the stock market exchanges and electronic security markets. The SEC is by far the most responsible regulatory body that failed to recognize the Ponzi scheme that Madoff was running. One thing that the SEC is responsible for is licensing investment advisors. And Bernie Madoff was not a licensed investment advisor, but he took on the role of one. The SEC mandates that any person who has greater than 15 clients or who are managing assets of 25 million or more must be licensed as an investment advisor. Now, Bernie Madoff had greater than 3,000 clients and was managing assets equaling around $50 billion. I'll discuss this a little bit more in detail in the next section, but it's not an excuse that the SEC didn't know about Madoff's practices because he was flying under the radar. There was actually a whistleblower. His name was Harry Macropolis, and he submitted a letter to the SEC in regards to the red flags he had found when he was looking into Bernie Madoff. In 2005, Macropolis submitted a memo titled The World's Largest Head Fund Fraud to the SEC, which consisted of around 25 pages outlining 30 red flags that he had found. This was after Macropolis attempted to recreate how Madoff was able to make his money and found that there was no way in doing so without fraud. 
In the memo, he analyzed the previous 174 months, so around 14 years, of Madoff's activity. He found that Madoff only had seven losing months on record that were not statistically significant. Seven months out of 14 years. After this memo came out, the SEC finally launched an investigation into Bernie Madoff and once finished, cleared him, saying that they had found no fraud. Later that day, Macropolis addressed the United States Congress, who is charged with regulating the SEC, saying that the SEC must have been paid off to come back with such a verdict. After that, the SEC was summoned before Congress, and there they admitted that they were severely understaffed and underfunded. The next regulatory body I want to talk about is the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, or FINRA. FINRA is charged with overseeing the broker-dealer business for companies and firms involved with trading securities. One appeal of investing with Bernie Madoff was that he did not charge any fees, which allowed the front investor, who has direct access to the client, to make additional money by charging the client the fees but keeping the money for themselves. Because there were no fees involved between Madoff and the other investors, there were no red flags in the broker-dealer relationship for FINRA to pick up on. FINRA cannot go beyond the broker-dealer relationship if it is legitimate, which it seemed to be at the time. Therefore, they couldn't take a look at Madoff's books to investigate. The biggest issue with FINRA was the lack of communication with the SEC. The SEC did not inform FINRA about the memos that they received from Macropolis or other whistleblowers. Next up on our list of regulatory bodies is the United States Congress. Now, as I mentioned, Congress oversees the SEC and controls the federal funding for them. Now, if you recall, when I said that the SEC testified in front of Congress in regards to why they cleared Madoff, they said that they were severely understaffed and underfunded. But it was Congress's job to make sure that the SEC had the proper resources to do their jobs swiftly and accurately, which they were not doing at the time. The fourth regulatory body who made errors in the Bernie Madoff scandal might be kind of surprising. It's the United States Postal Service. And it's because the United States Postal Service has a division dedicated to detecting mail fraud. Now, Madoff did not send out his client statements electronically like most other investment companies did, but instead he sent them through the mail. Now, not only did he send them through the mail, but he also sent them in retrospect so that he could fake the information on the statements, showing that investors made money on certain legitimate exchanges that had already happened. But Madoff was not actually involved in those exchanges at all. And that is something that the United States Postal Service Fraud Division should have picked up on. The fifth regulatory body is the due diligence officers at investment firms or companies. Each firm has due diligence officers that are charged with checking the legality of an exchange, specifically when it's something being bought or sold. In many of the cases for firms who are investing with Bernie Madoff, many of them did not perform acceptable due diligence. For example, there is a firm in New York City called the Fairfield Greenwich Group, and the due diligence officer for this firm actually was located in Bermuda. Her name was Sherry Cohen, and she was an employee of Fairfield, and it was said that she did absolutely no due diligence while she was working for them. The sixth regulatory body with errors were the actual individual investors who were investing with Bernie Madoff. Now, you'll remember I said that clients would invest with these individual investors. So it's kind of like the middleman. And then these individual investors were investing with Bernie Madoff. So 
there wasn't a clear view between Bernie Madoff and the actual clients who were investing their own money. So the individual investors, the middlemen who spoke directly with clients, neglected to do their fiduciary duties by not disclaiming that their money was going to be invested with Bernie Madoff rather than the investment firms that they were saying that they were investing with. It was not in their client's best interest to lie to them about where their money was going. And there were multiple of these individual investors who were investing money with Bernie Madoff. And many of the people who worked at those individual investors were also investing their money with Bernie Madoff because they saw that he was making such a good profit. And in the end, when it all came crumbling down and all came to light, one of these people who worked at the individual investment firms actually committed suicide over the matter and what he had lost. The seventh regulatory body I want to talk about are the employees on the 17th floor of the Lipstick Building. Now, the Lipstick Building was where Bernie Madoff ran his firm out of, and he had multiple floors, and the 17th floor was very elusive. Not a lot of people were allowed on it. So the employees on the 17th floor were the employees who helped Bernie Madoff get away with his fraudulent activity. When investors and clients came to see the Madoff's operation, they were taken to the 19th floor where business seemed very legitimate. Little did the investors know that two floors down, the evidence of fraud was all there. These individuals were tasked with manipulating statements to show that money was made from certain stock exchanges that had already occurred. So the client would believe that they made money off of it. They would then print out the statements and mail it to the client. Not one of these employees asked questions or raised eyebrows. It's hard to believe that they were convinced that what they were doing was standard practice and completely legal. The eighth and last regulatory body I want to talk about is the New York Times. At the time when Harry Markopoulos, the whistleblower, sent that memo to the SEC in 2005, he also sent a copy of that memo to the New York Times. When the editors read it, they decided not to pursue the story. It is the responsibility of journalists to inform the public about what's happening in the world. If the New York Times would have ran that story, people could have been informed about the potential Ponzi scheme happening and could have either allocated their funds and invested with another firm or at least could have reassessed the situation. It also would have forced the SEC and Congress's hand into investigating more rigorously into Bernie Madoff as the public would have been demanding answers. The definition of white-collar crime are crimes that are financially motivated and nonviolent, that are committed by person or persons in positions of power, wealth, and trust. In many cases of white-collar crimes, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly who the victim is, as the crimes themselves may be hard to understand or are vague. These crimes are not like street crimes, where there are victims that are obvious and the public has a sharp burning for immediate justice. Because of the comprehension and vagueness of these crimes and the vagueness surrounding the legislation for enforcing punishments for these crimes, they do not spark the same burning for justice that street crimes do. It may be because there are a number of loopholes in the legislation. Many people do not get overworked about these crimes because they feel that justice cannot be served adequately and therefore do not even give it the time of day. The victims in the case of the Bernie Madoff scandal are no small list. The ultimate victims were the clients who invested their money with those individual investors or those middlemen. Shared responsibility is very applicable in this case. Shared responsibility refers to the amount of responsibility given to each party involved in a crime. For example... A victim who has 0% responsibility in a crime would be a child being molested by an adult. The child did not do anything, nor could they have done anything different to avoid this crime. 
A victim having around 20% of responsibility for a crime would be if items were stolen from a car because the car doors were not locked. While the crime is still present, the victim could have possibly avoided the situation by locking their doors. Lastly, an example where a victim has around 80% of responsibility would be if a husband was physically assaulting his wife and then she murdered him in self-defense. Technically, the husband is a victim of a murder, but he is mostly responsible for being in that situation. The clients in the case of Bernie Madoff do not carry much responsibility because those individual investors, those middlemen, those companies lied to them. Now, those individual investors, those middlemen, they are victims as well because they didn't know that Bernie Madoff was running a Ponzi scheme, but they were aware that he didn't want his name to appear on any legal documentation and that he was not licensed as an investment advisor. They would be assigned around 20 to 30% of responsibility in this situation. Lastly, those employees who worked on the 17th floor with Bernie Madoff, who helped him get away with his Ponzi scheme for so long, are also victims. They were following orders and not asking questions. It's very likely that they were aware that their activities were not standard, but they chose not to question it. In this situation, they would assume around 50% responsibility for their victimization. All right, let's talk about sanctioning. Sanctioning is used to help prevent future crimes from occurring by using the following goals. Punishment, retribution, deterrence, incapacitation, rehabilitation, and restorative justice. So I want to talk about the possible sanctions for the parties involved in the Bernie Madoff scandal. The first is restorative justice for the victims of the Bernie Madoff scandal. Bernie Madoff was sentenced to 150 years in prison, but when he pled guilty to his crimes, he had pride in his voice. He was not ashamed of what he had done. He was more impressed with himself that he'd gotten away with it for so long. So in terms of restorative justice, even though Bernie Madoff is being punished by 150 years in prison, what is that actually doing for the victims of the crime? So a proposed sanction that would be along the lines of restorative justice would be for victims to be able to confront Bernie Madoff and describe to him how the Ponzi scheme affected them and their lives. And the goal of this would hopefully be to make Bernie Madoff feel regret for deceiving these individuals and for these individuals to hopefully at least get an apology from him. The second sanction would be penalties for members of Bernie Madoff's team. And this would be an example of deterrence. So while some of the top employees who are working along Bernie Madoff have been charged with crimes, a proposed sanction would be that the individuals who are carrying out the orders that were handed down to them without questioning the legality should face repercussions as well. The reason for this is not only because these individuals helped Bernie Madoff get away with one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in history, but also because it would serve as a deterrence to other employees at companies where they suspect that they are being asked to commit illegal activities as well. So rather than not questioning the legality of it, that they would take a moment, think about it, remember what happened to other people in this situation. So it's a form of general deterrence. And they would say, I think I need to look into this further and not just go along with it because if I get caught doing something illegal too, I'm gonna be on the hook. The third area for sanctions is greater scrutiny of the SEC by Congress. And this is a form of incapacitation. Since the Bernie Madoff scandal, the SEC was required to do an analysis of how they were unable to detect the illegal activities being performed by Bernie Madoff. They have released documents describing their findings and how they plan to correct moving forwards. 
A proposed sanction would be for any information coming forward in regards to a case this large in which the SEC doesn't feel the need to investigate must be taken before a committee in Congress to decide if it will be investigated or not. This would avoid another instance in which the SEC can overlook a potentially huge scandal and also that Congress is aware of the resources that the SEC needs to do their job accurately. If the reason they are choosing not to investigate a claim is because they do not have enough employees, Congress needs to adjust the SEC budget so they can hire more people. This will incapacitate the SEC's ability not to investigate a matter on the grounds of understaffing and underfunding. The fourth sanction would be the loss of license for investment advisors, and this is a form of a punishment. For those investment advisors who misled their clients to invest money with them while not telling the clients that they were really investing with Bernie Madoff, should have their investment advisor licenses revoked by the SEC. This would cause these individuals to only be able to have 15 clients and manage accounts only equaling up to $25 million. This way, the investors could not have a heyday with their clients' money. They wouldn't be able to invest that much because of the cap of $25 million in assets, nor would they be able to reach out and get as many clients as possible because of the cap of the 15 clients. The fifth sanction is for investment advisors to help pay back what the clients lost. And this is a form of retribution. The investment advisors who made hundreds of millions of dollars by investing their clients' money into Bernie Madoff's fund should be required to pay a certain amount to help refund the clients who lost everything. This would be not only an act of retribution for the investors, but also an act of restorative justice for the victims, as they feel that justice is being served and is helping them heal by keeping their lives together. As I mentioned, people killed themselves because of the scandal. People lost everything, their entire retirements, their entire life savings, and they had nothing. So having the retribution of the investors paying back what the clients lost could have helped prevent that loss of life and that extreme despair that people were put into. I mean, these people worked their entire lives to save money for retirement and it was gone in a blink of an eye. I can't even imagine what that would feel like. The sixth and final sanction is community service for those involved in the Bernie Madoff scandal. And this is a form of rehabilitation. It is concerning that many of the offenders involved with the Bernie Madoff scandal were okay with cheating their clients. While many investors didn't know that Bernie Madoff was running a Ponzi scheme, they didn't ask questions on how he was making his money and if it was the best thing for their clients. As I stated before, when Bernie Madoff confessed, he was proud of what he had accomplished. And the truth is, many people that were involved did not care as long as money kept flowing in. So sanctioning these individuals with community service or philanthropy would help them be more conscious of other people and hopefully in return, stay true to their fiduciary duties and looking out for the well-being of their clients and others. Thank you all so much for listening today. If you want to learn more about me, please visit my website. It is at www.crisisofcrime.com. There you will find my other podcasts as well as my YouTube videos and links to my social media. If you are enjoying this podcast and you would like to support it, there is a support tab on my website where you can sign up to become a patron. Another great way to support me is just to like and share this content. So thank you again for tuning in today. And I hope that you guys have a great week and I will see you next time.